There's no music if you have no body to play it with, so take care of your body first. You getting into the gym and you lifting weights and working on muscles, is it's physical therapy for the benefit of your playing. The truth is nothing works like just taking care of the simple stuff. Diet, exercise and sleep. Take care of that and you'll be fine. Join us as two musicians and fitness coaches discuss strength, wellness and fitness in relation to musicians, artists and performance. Hi there. Welcome back to the Tuned and Strong podcast. This lovely lady over here is Angela McHouston of Music Strong. And this is Dr. Jen Cabasmay of Tuned and Tone Performance. And we're joined today by a very special guest, Dr. Simone Maurer. Did I say your name correctly? Uh, yes, it was Simone Mora is how we would pronounce it, I guess, in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in Australia. What part of Australia are you in? Yeah, I'm currently based in Melbourne. Right. And so can you tell everybody who's listening a little bit about who you are? I mean, I met you at the NFA conference in Utah a few years ago, and you had just mm -hmm. left New York, I think, and we're on your way back to mm -hmm. Australia. So, I mean, that was a really perfect hop, skip and a jump for you <laughs> I got your way back. <laughs> it was indeed. Yes, that was, I think, the 2019 conference. Wow. Yes, it was, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. So, yes, I'm a flute player. Um, which makes sense why we met at a flute <laughs> convention. So my training uh, was in classical flute playing. Actually, I sort of originally took the orchestral flute playing route, sort of did that in my undergraduate degree uh, back here in Australia. And then um, I did an honours as part of my undergrad and became quite interested in music research and particularly music performance and research and how that even worked. Uh, so that led me to then study overseas. Uh, I went to the University of Cambridge in England and I did uh, my master's and MPhil in, in music studies and specialized in, in music performance. Uh, but I was working within the music performances research department. And my research there was a quite different to what I'm doing now, uh, but I was really interested in language and accent and flute playing and, and how that influences flute sound, which is, you know, there's already a substantial amount of research on that. But it was when I was at Cambridge that uh, one of my classmates and within this music performance research world, I discovered that, uh, that some researchers were looking at body and movement in all sorts of music performance and I became curious about that I wanted to know more as to oh yeah what is the role of the body sometimes I guess I had come from quite a, a traditional background of thinking of music as quite a, a cognitive exercise and you know that music theory and this really uh, strict classical training and and I hadn't really considered the body um, in my body either I'd had a couple of injuries that had been <laughs> quite bad but I thought, oh, but music, you know, you can't, I didn't really see myself like an athlete. I could, I knew that people were talking about musicians needing to look after their bodies, but I still wasn't really embodying that myself and <laughs> taking it on board. Anyway, um, I, I spent another year in the UK teaching and such, and then uh, moved back to Australia and, and moved to Melbourne, where um, the University of Melbourne is uh, Australia's biggest 
or maybe not the biggest um, university, but it's very uh, high ranking, has a really great uh, music department. And as I found out, their music psychology department is, uh, is very well known internationally, particularly for one researcher who is my now PhD supervisor, <laughs> Professor Jane Davidson. So she's one of the pioneering music psychologists to look at embodiment uh, and embodied cognition of musicians. So acknowledging that music, music making, um, and actually all sorts of music engagement isn't just cognitive and there's a, a huge bodily aspect to it um, and, and a, an embodiment to uh, thinking and understanding and that cognitive aspect of, of music. So anyway, I quickly fell into a, a PhD in music performance and uh, and then that grew into music performance and, and psychology as well. So I was exploring solo flute music that also had composer instructed choreography or stage movements or body um, aspects to it to either manipulate the sound or staging to help tell this story. Um, you know, the different types of movement and things are, um, Composers like Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, Oliver Nussen has a great piece for solo flute uh, masks, which has staging and things like that. Um, there are a few other pieces um, I can list off or provide later if people are All interested. All I know is George Crumb's <laughs> Voice of the Whale. That was my favorite. I thought that was just the coolest thing, you know, for three masked players under a blue light. Like, oh, I have to play this. I just thought it was so cool. That's the only one I know it of. It is so cool. <laughs> yeah, because it it really it really um yeah, it br brings things a lot. There's so much to consider when we I think acknowledge and embrace this idea of body and and not just sort of hiding on stage or but really um is stepping into that and, and curious to see what composers can do with that and of course uh, musicians as well. It's breaking away from um, perhaps an old ideology of um, composer's intention and the musician just being this vessel through which music, <laughs> but actually acknowledging that the musician themselves and their body and how they, you know, that whole aspect uh, has uh, contributes to a performance. Um, and music psychology research reflects that. We know visual bias is huge in audiences understanding, perceiving, evaluating, judging a performance as well. So um, so then I thought, okay, I really want to understand this for my own artistic development. I'm curious to know what's going on. And I thought, well, flute players uh, are really interesting. You know, we've got this asymmetrical instrument, well, we hold it asymmetrically. Uh, what an interesting thing to navigate, um, uh, but also so it's we often talk about the flute being very related to the voice uh, and, and singers have amazing movement training as part of their, but I just feel like that's never questioned. Whereas with instrumentalists, I thought, ooh, yeah, why, why don't we have those same movement training as the opera, you know, as I saw my opera friends doing um, at university level, I thought, oh, I think I could I think I could benefit you know from, from knowing my body more feeling really comfortable and confident and also a huge uh, musician health 
implication, which Angela, you, that's your whole life. <laughs> and and I, I, you know, I really respect what you do there because as someone who's had to get myself um, through injury or I have hypermobility and, you know, constantly dealing with that, I'm so grateful that I've, I've had such serious movement training myself and can look after myself as a professional musician and, and someone who has a lot of you know bendy joints and things like that <laughs> <laughs> so anyway i'm getting a little bit off track but as part of my phd um uh, the music psychology side i wanted to look at, at flute players and actually analyze their movements and, and just start to understand that. So uh, my supervisor, Professor Jane Davidson, she said, oh, I've been using this movement analysis framework with another researcher, Dr. Mary Broughton from the University of Queensland up north in Australia. And they were looking at marimba players and, um, and the embodiment of that. And, uh, and they said, oh, we, we use something that's called Laban movement analysis. I said, what's that? <laughs> so I started reading up on it, and uh, and I came to to um to realize uh, this person Laban um, uh, Rudolf von Laban, he was an Austro-Hungarian dancer, dance educator, and and really dance theorist, um, which is the the big thing looking at at movement analysis. So he created this framework. Well, not just him. I'd really like to mention here that there were a lot of people, including a lot of um, invisible women um, who, who worked for him and, and with him and, and students and ideas that were, you know, um, uh, that, that he picked up from other people. But if we can say, when I say Laban's work, I'm acknowledging a lot of people, um, visible and invisible, who, who contributed to that. But he created uh, this, this framework, which is still being developed, and there was a lot developed after, um, after he passed. Um, and it, Laban movement analysis, I define it and explain it as a theoretical and experiential framework used to describe analyze and interpret human movement analysis. And, uh, and Laban also created a notation system for this as well. And he, and he did this so that movement could be recorded. There were already you know, different ways of uh, annotating and recording dance choreography, but he created his own system Funnily enough, it borrows very heavily from music notation, <laughs> so I was able to pick it up very quickly. Um, but it's a really cool uh, notation system, and the fact that you can you can watch someone record it down, then once it's in this written format, it can be studied and analysed and put back together and synthesised and re really interrogated. So he was trying to move dance and movement from just this own creative art form into quite a, a, a scholarly discipline um, in a way which I find um, yeah re really interesting so I I wanted to know more about it and and long story short I got a scholarship to to move to New York for one year and study at the Laban Bartenyev Institute of Movement Studies in New York it's in Brooklyn there so they have a, a nine-month certification in Laban movement analysis program uh, so that was a big change. I, I actually hadn't been to America before, but I thought, why not move to New York? You know, keep it casual the first time around. And, keep it casual. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was a it was a life changing um, year to be over there, actually. And through that 
um, that movement training, the Laban aspect and his student, Ermgard Bartenev, um, and, and her work as well, which is sort of more in the physical therapy, rehabilitation um, side of it. Um, but the, yeah, the year of study there was so important for this scholarly aspect to really apply into my PhD and analysing the way that flute players move, but also artistically, you know, that, that creative um, element. And then just personally uh, as well, like I said, gaining a lot of confidence through uh, self-knowledge and realising that my body holds a lot of knowledge as well. It, uh, if I can tap into it and I, I actually know what I need to recuperate and by learning um, some, some common developmental patterns from Bartenev's uh, fundamentals, I could create uh, a, an informed and a structured but very personalised sort of movement program uh, for, for myself, which uh, I've, I've really been uh, embodying since <laughs> and, and really enjoying. So then uh, that was, oh, when did I start that? Uh, the sort of October 2018. So I did the year and uh, there, and then of course applied to present at the um, the National Fleet Association Convention, which is where I met Angela, and that's sort of where that story intersects. How serendipitous. Yeah. I had never heard of what you were talking about, and I was like, oh, another movement body person, I have to meet her. <laughs> no, there oh, weren't so many. Yeah. Absolutely. And that was a fascinating thing. Like, um, you know, America, America's flute scene, I was so impressed by it. Um, uh, Australia has a really lovely, warm flute community, but it's nowhere near the size and the intensity that the NFA convention was. I was blown away. And that was Amazed. a small convention. There was not a large attendance to that it's one. so hard for me to understand. <laughs> well, it was Utah. I mean, a lot of people didn't care to go to Utah and like, you know, it was far out and it wasn't close. Mm. And they're like, eh. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if it, if you've gone to like one in Orlando or they did one in San Francisco or this year is going to be in Chicago, it's going to be, I mean, I think there's like 6,000 members. It's something insane. There's too many flute players it's, in the world. That's a, <laughs> I, I love that though. <laughs> yeah, amazing. And, and I had joined, um, I joined a session with another movement person uh, as well. We we had shared a shared a session in terms of presenting. So yeah, it is it is an established field. Um, this, whether you want to think of it as um, movement or, or health well-being, I like to refer to it often as a, as a somatic practice uh, and somatic meaning just of the body. So yoga, that's a somatic practice. Alexander technique, that's a somatic practice as is Feldenkrais. What, the Laban movement analysis is somatic as is Bartenia fundamentals, like anything anything to do with the, with the body. And that leads into you know, sort of body-mind connection and body mapping and all those things, which I think are just fantastic. I think we do talk about, well, we're all sort of referring to the same things. We just have different ways of uh, talking about them. The language is different. And, and I think that's a strength. I like that there are so many... Um, different avenues in so people can find really what works for them and I like the um, the Laban world and the Bartenev world as well uh, the Laban framework really gave me a language and a way of taking a, a whole thing 
breaking it down into little parts, uh, being able to focus on them individually, but then synthesizing it back to the whole again. And the Bartenia fundamentals uh, were really helpful to me because of their recuperative nature, uh, their body conditioning aspect of it, and that they're quite dynamic in a way. And uh, I've heard from people who studied with Ermgard Bartenev herself that she was quite a dynamic teacher and in her sort of movement classes, she would like to start standing up and people would, that there would be a lot of focus on on moving and and how do we support not just a static posture, but how can you support yourself functionally and expressively while moving. And I really love that aspect of, uh, of her fundamentals and her principles as well. That movement doesn't just have to be functional, but we can add in these ex expressive elements. Uh, although I think it, it's hard to say that there's, even, even, even if you're moving in a very controlled way, that's still expressing something itself, I think. But this, um, uh, this very, dynamic, uh, ex expressive, enlivening sort of movement, I find, um, I find recuperative in a way um, and, and very uh, just lovely to have <laughs> in, uh, as a person as well as artistically. Hmm. So um, should I explain a little bit, get into some details? I know talked very vaguely, um, I can explain a bit of the Laban framework and how that fits in with Bartenev's work. Uh, that's what I was going to say, because I was jotting down questions like, what does this look like? And like, how yeah. do you use it? What are some examples? Uh -huh. And I think if you just want to go into that, that would explain all of my Absolutely. questions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And please, please feel free to, to ask along the way. So I'll start with uh, Laban's framework of uh, how do we analyze movement? How do we start breaking that down? Um, so Laban categorized human movement in, in, with four main categories, and they are body, which is the, the what body part or um, body combination is, is moving. And then space, where is that body or bodies? moving, how can we refer to space? Then the category of effort. Effort is a bit of a, um, a loaded word in, in English. I think, it, you know, effort, we can, oh, it's, you have to put in, I have to work hard. <laughs> but effort in, in the Laban framework, linguistically, it came from um, the time of the, the world wars and the war effort was actually seen as quite a, a positive thing um, or wanting to contribute to but effort in this um, framework you can think of it as the quality of movement and it's, it, it goes into a further breakdown there but I'll move on to the last category and that's shape now Laban himself didn't didn't uh, separate shape out that was done by one of his students Warren Lamb um, but shape is uh, shape is to do with the relationship between the mover and themselves or the mover in their environment. So of these four categories, we have what body part is moving where in space with what quality, how, and in what relationship to, to those, that body, space, effort, and, and shape. So 
yeah, those ways of, of breaking it down. Each category has its own terminology, its own notational system. Uh, in the body category, we can talk about body parts, body actions, initiations and sequencing. How does the, where does the movement start and how does it flow through the body? Um, it, sometimes body can be considered more of that functional uh, category of uh, going back to initiation and sequencing, if you're seeing someone walking and maybe they're having some uh, lower back pain or, or, you know, they're a bit uncomfortable or something like that, you might look at, okay, when they're walking, where do they initiate from? Maybe they're uh, initiating really from their knees when they're starting to walk or maybe they don't have that follow through of the whole pelvis um, helping them or maybe their, uh, their chin and their neck is leading. The, so, you know, look, looking really at, um, the, at what is what is moving where, yeah, what's initiation, initiating the movement and how does that flow and sequence through? And that category really works quite well with Ermgard Bartenev, who was one of uh, Laban's students. And so she was really interested in, um, it, well, in that functional side, but as I said before, also expressive movement. <laughs> and, uh, and she was, I guess, herself, she, her, I guess, bugbear was, was people's um, sort of pelvic area and this, you know, lower torso, upper hip area, which I think she um, so is often kind of a dead area of people. Then, oh, <laughs> especially if you're an office worker who sits a lot or a musician who has to sit a lot in an orchestra or a musical theatre pit. Um, so or she was really big. <laughs> yes, oh, story of my life. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so she was really interested in body connectivity, as you know, that upper lower and uh, all that sort of stuff. So, so she had nine guiding principles related to breath support, core support, getting into dynamic alignment. Or I won't go into those details, but she also had six basic exercises that really worked on connecting through that sort of dead middle section of, of the body and, and how to um, how to condition it to, uh, to, to really work and, and have that full body uh, connectivity and uh, and expressiveness as well so uh, the movement yeah the, she calls them the basic six exercises a lot of them are, are sort of lying down and um, related to the pelvic uh, area, it, it moves from some thigh lifts connecting through the psoas and all of those really important uh, muscles down there, really feeling them and some very small, it's nothing like having to do 20 sit-ups, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all of those sorts of things. Um, but it, it is a real sort of condition, like getting into your body, feeling those connections, connecting with the breath, uh, I'm sure you know many people are thinking oh yeah that's just like what um i do in pilates or something <laughs> yes yeah absolutely yeah connection to breath is is super important in terms of getting inside the body so so bartanyev was um was really into helping people connect back into their bodies for efficient functional movement but also to allow them to express themselves through their movement in the ways that they want to mm. what like widening that functional and expressive movement pattern and i think that's quite related to what we do in in music uh, as well you know as, as flute players we don't just want to 
to practice to play a piece. We, we, we learn to have a full range of, of tone colours and articulation options and then we apply them in, into um, pieces and where we need them. It's the same thing with, with Bartanyev's principles and her and her basic six exercises the general body conditioning and uh, and expressiveness that you can apply parts of, of where you need to so um, yeah through through Bartanyev's uh, body condition what, what we had to do in the in this nine month certification course I became really aware particularly of my heel to six bones connection so even like I even now years later when I'm walking upstairs I think of that yeah where am I initiating from how is my body sequencing through so I don't overuse my surface level front facing muscles but I'm really thinking of that um, lower behind sits bones uh, to heel connection and that dynamic alignment through my legs to help propel me walking upstairs so um, yeah and I mm. and I can apply different expressive quality effort factors from Laban's effort quality category of, of movement to help um, uh, to help enliven that in this quite expressive way so yeah that's one particular area that I really benefited from and even getting up and down from from chairs that that heel, heel to sits bone um, connection and a lot of also rotation we know as flute players Oh, Angela, mm. I feel you would know so much shoulder, flute players and shoulders and shoulder pain and neck pain. And then yep, mm. it's because we go that way. Mm. Yep. Yes. And so, and so I. Then doesn't have to deal that. with that, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, I'm just oh, fighting gravity a... straight up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different sort of yeah. Uh, yeah. shoulder pain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Before we go too far into that, you hit on something. Yeah. I mean, as you're explaining this, it's starting mm -hmm. to make so much sense. And it sounds so much like what Jen is dealing with a lot with the whole dynamic integration and Feldenkrais mm -hmm. and, and the Alexander technique, mm -hmm. you know, and yep. I've had some of that. And these all work so well together. And I can, and as you're explaining this, it's like, oh, yeah, musicians need this because if you're not aware of your pelvis, if as Ava used to say, if you're, do you feel your feet? If you don't feel mm -hmm. your feet, you can't play well because we're all stuck mm -hmm. up in here. And with what I do, if you're all paying attention to here and here and, you know, your fingers and your embouchure and your emotions and you forget about the space behind your knees and the inside of your big toe and the outside of your, the fact that you have the rest of your body, not mm -hmm. only are you possibly shutting off your possible expression, you can also create an injury because you're holding excess tension or you're, you know, you're just not aware until pain yeah. smacks you in the face That's and makes it. you wake up. So true. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I love what you're talking there, Angela, as well about, um, about space and environment and you and your body in in space this was another big sort of light bulb moment for me from the from the laban um framework and and some of bartenius but um from that body category going into like what is moving and where and i um and uh, laban he had training as an architect actually so this idea of body architecture and, and space had a, he had a really interesting way of conceptualizing that uh, and, and he made a lot of drawings 
uh, he, he was obviously really great at, at sketching. Uh, there's a an archive of a lot of his work at Surrey University in the UK. And when I was in New York over, um, I think our spring break or whatever, I, I took a trip to the UK and, and went to the Surrey archives and looked at his drawings. They're fabulous. Um, and uh, well, I mean, maybe they're fabulous in that they they convey a lot about dynamic movement in in space so Laban was really interested in three-dimensional geography especially uh, this idea of sacred geography so the platonic solids uh, in particular um, I, I use a lot in my own work reference to an icosahedron which is a perfectly symmetrical 12-sided um, sort of 12-cornered three-dimensional um, three shape or you could think of it as a, as a volume. And that's really connected to the three dimensions of space. So if you imagine you were putting your, your arms and, and your legs open, standing like a star, or as if you were in, in a door frame, you have um, high right, high left, low um, right, low left, they're four corners. Then imagine the horizontal plane around you. You can reach to forward, uh, to the right, forward, to the left. You can reach back to the right, back to the left. There are another four corners. And then the, the final uh, dimension or plane, we'll say uh, sagittal plane, uh, reaching forward and up, down, um, uh, down back high uh, and, and down to the front as well. Another four. So that's where you get your, your 12 corners actually map really well onto um, where the human body anatomically can reach. So you can imagine yourself and Laban did, he, he imagined humans moving within, uh, the, the human body works really well within this icosahedron, imagining you're standing in a really inside a three-dimensional icosahedron. And you can just where the limits of your joints naturally move, work with those uh, corners of an icosahedron. So then he had these 12 points and could notate those 12 points Perhaps you're getting a bit of a music 12 notes of the chromatic scale mm. vibe here. Yes, huge mapping on. Um, it's That's no coincidence at all. <laughs> that's sort of um, just an essential part of it. But now he has these 12 spatial points to refer to. We know just like with music, you can have heaps of, like there's an endless amount of sort of pitch and microtones and things between our 12 notes, but uh, and same with the space, but it's good to have 12 things to hold on to so that we can generally talk about where a body um, part is moving through or, or between. And, and from that, I'm able to conceptualize people's movement in, um, uh, in quite a structured way. And I use this in my flute teaching as well, maybe not as hardcore as the <laughs> icosahedron, but when I'm uh, looking and helping um, uh, flute players, younger flute players, maybe sort of in that high school and early university level, I, this is where the embodied cognition comes back to. When I often observe flute players learning a piece or they're in a technical 
jam and they're going over, I look at what their movement pattern is and that can help me understand how they're conceptualizing it. But also I think it happens the other way. I'm working um, one of my main flute student at the moment, early university level. We have a lot of success with helping a lot of technical runs when when that student is stuck in this kind of beating or you know that flute movement where you kind of get a bit up and down yeah yes. up and down or <laughs> winding around or the circles and, yes yes the circles yeah yeah that's right i'm pretty sure a lot of woodwind players do this yeah yeah the little circle of frustration <laughs> circle yeah. of frustration <laughs> like the little mac wheel that you know little rainbow wheel of death on the mac computer so you know that's Oh, you get stuck in it. It's a bit frustrating. Yep. Uh, so when I see um, my students stuck in that, we, we stop, we look at the melodic contour, like if it's just runs going up, I say, okay, I think your body movement might actually be impeding your cognitive ability to, uh, to understand and then uh, externalize and embody that right I know my student knows how to play um, crazy chromatic scales and you know they've done a lot of work on that <laughs> uh, but I think it's just at a point where actually the body is it's trying to do something like good on your body but you're actually doing something that's not helpful I think that's informed by the limits of our instrument and the weird ways we have to hold it and we everyone sort of we all know those movements that we get stuck in. I think that's just inherent to the instrument that you play. But then we stop and I get my student to move one, like in one direction very subtly. They can move in any, any way they like. In fact, I do encourage them to have a go, okay, let's try just moving backwards as you play that phrase or just trying moving forward or to the side or maybe you're just lengthening your spine when you do that. You don't have to move. Some people don't want to have very dynamic movement when they're playing, but we actually have a really rich inner space in our body and we can just think of lengthening and shortening our spine or widening and narrowing or bulging and hollowing um that's been a really lovely thing for me to realize when when i'm on stage i feel very self-conscious of how much i'm moving and i know my perception is warped by my adrenaline and my nerves so i really tap into this idea of i have this I have so much space inside my body. I have this three-dimensional space. And I also can, can reach out into my external space, which I envisage in this uh, icosahedron. And then for my students, giving them a, a, a bodily direction to that supports the music instantly. It's always such a fix of, oh, and then you can see the cognitive relax as well because while they're trying to move around and play that no, 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 no 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 moving mm -hmm. with the hat <laughs> and body mm -hmm. permission it works in and out you need the other and then it's just it's like oh i've got this plan so i'm not trying to choreograph musician musicians or or anything like or, or force them into a way but we we i think it's important to recognize when the body steps in and is actually impeding itself and the cognitive aspect. Like if you had to move a lot, like that much, and think about playing, you know, some pretty tricky technical passages, it would be it would be pretty hard. What is it like to have 
something a, a movement that works with the melodic contour or the you know where that um, technical passage is going um, at least at least sometimes so when, when I see my student or uh, you know other students as well getting into a bit of a funk <laughs> we can look at this embodied way of, of helping them get there and it's so quick it's so immediate you see the the spark in that oh whoa yeah hang on maybe I was just putting on all of this um, extra movement stuff as you said Angela unconsciously as well because we can get trapped in our heads yeah fair enough <laughs> also fleet playing it you know that where we blow into it it's so close to our head even our fingers are pretty close to it we're so like upper body forward facing like fair enough <laughs> i can i can understand i experienced it as well that's why it's great to have external people teachers peers colleagues guiding us to help us just reconfigure where we are in ourselves and our external environment yeah yeah and i know that we've talked about this too but again it sounds self-serving coming from us since this is what we do right? <laughs> right. so it's nice to have somebody else saying uh no you you need external like same same with what you would do for your musical training you're not going to just self-teach you know and expect to get to beyond a certain level usually rare rare exceptions but like yeah but you can get better faster with outside help Mm -hmm. You know, um, and I'm, I'm going to yes. backtrack here just a little bit um, to what you yeah. were talking about with um, the concept of that that smooth directional line, right, with the with the movement of that that passage you were talking about. Um, and it just it struck me. So I felt like I wanted to share it. Um, <laughs> mm, but what do. you're talking about is is something that um, I know we do through well, at least as, as musical teachers, there's there's a, an aspect of this and then through the physical portion too. Um, but when you're teaching an early student an instrument, right? And they're, they're starting to get towards that intermediate, right? Well, okay, well, you know your C major scale. Yes, I know my C major scale. I can play it all day long. Okay, then we get to a passage and they get hung up on this A2 that they're working on. And you see, or you see like, okay, what is it? A C major scale. Why are you reading every note? <laughs> what do you mean? You, do you know your C major, play your C major scale? There it goes. You don't need yep. to read every note. Mm -hmm. Oh. <laughs> yes, what you're they read every note and they right. can embody every note as well. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, yeah. and it's yeah. like as if I'm trying to read a sentence and uh -huh. I'm reading every uh -huh. word because <laughs> I've forgotten how to read an entire sentence and connect right. it together. It's the yeah. same with that, with that, I mean, well, it, it's like if um, I'm, I don't have um, formal dance training, but there was a large dance and choreography uh, aspect of, of the course, which was actually really wonderful. And, um, uh, and, and, and learning some of those choreography elements, it's, I had to experience that of like, okay, we want to do this and that and that, and then we're going to spin around, okay, and then we're going to little change down to the floor. <laughs> so, yeah. oh, did it feel like I was learning <laughs> a musical instrument again from the very beginning? Exactly what you've described, Jen, of yeah. Yeah. we've learned the individual parts, but a huge part of musical phrasing, 
and movement phrasing is how we integrate all of that together. And that's embodied cognition. That's every somatic practice I feel is helping people get to that get to that point. Um, and and I like to think uh, what part of what my PhD is looking at, and one part that I'm really excited of is um, how I how I'm sort of phrasing it, and what I think is really important is what I'm looking at. Uh, like I video recorded a number of flute players all playing the same piece, sight reading, practicing, and then performing the same piece. And I'm observing their movement over that learning um, period, but also between their uh, you know, final performances um, uh, to, to look at the development of that, uh, of that movement. And, and it's really lovely because you, you, you hear them. There is that musical phrasing. There is that, movement phrasing as well i i often i always start my movement analyses with no sound to just look at the movement because as soon as you hear and see you're oh, getting influenced by the musical phrasing so i have to meet that to just get down to the movement analysis but then as soon as i put them together there's like this third level phrasing or this third narrative coming through what you hear, what you see, and then that performative um, factor. So that's in terms of my PhD, what I'm really interested in. And it's what I feel you've just been describing of this, oh, C major, I know it and to play it and note, note, note. Right. And then to let go of that, to have the cognitive and the embodied aspect and it produces this, this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Not sure yeah. how to describe that. Just, than just that. getting out of your own way, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that That's it. And that's where I think self-body knowledge and having other people helping and guiding you is so important and really liberating as well because you know not just by chance what's working, but you've really decided, oh, actually, I can get into this um habit of playing every single note i know that's one of my habits so therefore when i'm in my practice session and that sort of unconsciously starts to happen that's fine we we don't have to prevent it unconscious but we have a conscious practice method and technique to help you know when, oh hang on i'm getting really frustrated hmm, maybe I can check myself out in the mirror. Oh, yeah, look, I'm, I'm starting to go into that little wheel of frustration, <laughs> a circle of frustration. Um, oh, hang on, that's right, I know what I can do. Let's start looking at how I can connect this. I totally agree with you, Jen, the visual aspect can, can um, really draw us back into, we lose our bodies in that way, uh, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's also, um, humans are, I think, generally more strongly visually biased than, than orally. And I'd say even especially now, modern world, when we've got phones and computer screens and like TikTok itself has probably contributed to to a lot of you know this visual culture. I, the the oral the music aspect of, of that is huge. Um, but again, we know that music psychology research, uh, studies, which have looked at gender bias, attractiveness bias, race bias of of musicians on on stage, um, and, and the you know, the really thorough research that they've done into that bias. We know visual bias plays a huge part into that. Um, so therefore, it's not surprising that when we're musicking ourselves, that our visual bias can take us away from our from our body. So we, we just need those moments 
where we can have someone to help us or we can help self-guide ourselves. Um, a, a great thing that I think more people should do and in, including myself is re video record yourself. Um, it's so hard to do. I know I'm cringing at the thought of having to, <laughs> to look back at myself where, you know, I think, oh, is that what I look like? <laughs> um, but it's, again, it's the self-knowledge because when we're, when we perform or, you know, playing music or something, we are the only ones never to really know what we look or sound like mm -hmm. because we're the ones doing it. We'll never have that experience. So even with the best recording, we'll never really know. Also, because our inner experience, what we feel, what we think we look like, what we think we feel like when we're playing is so strong. You know, what is our inner perception? Um, how can we align what we think we're doing with the outer actual happening of that? <laughs> so that's where recording um, can be really useful. And this is, uh, spoiler alert, one of the main, <laughs> main uh, sort of uh, findings of my PhD, which I wasn't expecting when I had looked at, um, uh, I had video recorded a lot of different flute players playing the same piece. Um, and then afterwards I got them to sit down. They chose their favorite performance that was recorded. And we sat down together to, to look at their, their movement while they were playing so that they could tell me, Oh, I, I wasn't happy with that. So I, I had an unconscious shudder or so, you know, it was important for me to not just slap my own external analysis on it, but also to interview that person and, and understand how they thought they moved and every single flute player, as soon as they sat down, there was a cringe moment, like before, you know, that interview officially started, it was, oh gosh. And, and a high number of them, I can't remember the exact percentage right now, many of them, especially the younger, um, like the uh, undergraduate and some of the master students were a bit like, oh, is, is that what I look like? Oh, I didn't realize that I did that. They said, oh, I thought I was making huge dynamic movements. And then actually on stage, they realized, oh, they barely moved at all. And actually I had the opposite. Someone else said, I don't move at all when I play. Um, <laughs> all over the place. Act, <laughs> uh, not all over the place, but they absolutely did. And it was really interesting. Every time there was a, a long sustained note, that person started swaying in a very particular repeated um, pattern. So they were so sure <laughs> that actually, it's kind of funny, they said to me, oh, look, no offense, but you know, your, your PhD study, I, I don't, I don't know how useful it's going to be because, you know, I don't, like people don't move when they play. It's, you know, it's not, it's not a thing. And I said, oh, okay, well, then I guess it'll be just my PhD summed up pretty quick there. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, uh, everyone's anonymous, of course. But anyway, then that person <laughs> performed for me and it was, you know, amazing. So, you know, uh, I, of course, you sit down and, and they had no idea. That, oh, I move like, I move like that. And it wasn't huge movement, but that, but it was there. And actually that subtle like swaying, it was actually really sort of beat related. Mm -hmm. And then like, oh yeah, I was really on that long note. Then I was really just having to wait for the next count. So you think, look, that that's fine. I'm not there to judge that. It's, it's just there to observe. And what I'm more interested in is, did, were you aware of that? Is that what you want to do? If not, how can we change that for you? you 
you know, are, are you interested in that? It's, it's about empowering musicians to know themselves and to have assistants doing that, have a language and a way of breaking that down so that they can then choose how they want, want to move. I totally agree if that person doesn't want to have huge dynamic movements when they're playing, that's great, but also um, <laughs> unconsciously, I think your body wants to do something. <laughs> like it's just, a, it's just through the flowing phrases was able to be quite still but then on that long note that body what I thought might have been a bit of a recuperative pattern and this is my final um comment on on recording these flute players I was really interested in what they did after they finished that last note and I looked at what body part initiating sequencing spatially did they need to step back down to the left in sort of this diagonal spatial pull? Did they need to roll out their shoulder? You know, did they actually need to have a bit of a, ooh, a, a reset? Because that moment, I think the body is so unconscious, well, the body movement is so unconscious, but the body knows what it needs. So um, I, I ha it's not a huge Part of my PhD, and it's more something that I'd, I'd like to look in into the future. But recuperative patterns. Well, what what do people just naturally do after after they finished playing that final note, and then it was okay, you know, recording up. <sighs> when you think that it's you know it's it's over, what what do, what does your body naturally do? Where does it go? How does it start initiate and uh, and and how dynamic or 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 you know, does it need mobility? Does it need stability in it? Um, is it more of a functional, uh, on the functional end, or, or is it expressing neutrality? Or, or do you actually, you need quite quite an expressive way of recuperating afterwards? So I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of recuperation and, and what people need. And I used to think recuperation was just sleeping. <laughs> work and sleep <laughs> and um <laughs> sleep playing and and sleeping and uh and through my movement training I've really come to realize that actually sometimes my recuperative need my body needs to recuperate just by being silly and having a happy dance or uh, or actually being quite dynamic and expressive or maybe it's rolling on the floor a bit or, or feeling a really stable flooring underneath me because I my hypermobility can sometimes get a bit I feel too mobile and my body craves stability not sleep but stability and make some specific strength strength, uh, strength training to help that um, so, re yeah, recuperation is, it's linked to those things, you know, those sayings of like, there's no such thing as, as the best posture. Uh, the best posture is the next posture. And this idea of, it's a, you know, you can sit with, with one leg up and I do, you know, for do that for 20 minutes and then I swing around and I do it on the other side, <laughs> you know, and then I sort of balance it out. And, um, and why can't I sit down on the couch? you know, for 20 minutes and do some work. And then, and then I might um, stand up and I have a sit stand desk. So, you know, it's just about changing and the, the essence of changing movement and when that needs to happen and those recuperative patterns and checking in with your body, being flexible and knowledgeable enough to know what you need, what you can do, how you might get around that. Uh, and a language and a structure for supporting it. Otherwise, movement can seem, I think, quite off-putting, especially for, for musicians. I'm sure we, we all know working with 
um, with music students on that um, sort of physical and, and embodied level sometimes i feel like i have to convince <laughs> some of my students that moving is good and it does, isn't just restricted to moving your fingers yes. on the floor <laughs> do you <laughs> yes in fact i have one student that i'm thinking of at the moment that i'm teaching and she gets very much so into doing the same things and her head juts forward a lot she does a lot of this and i'm just like ow it hurts me to look at you <laughs> you know like we need to move and i gotta break out of that pattern i'm like so sometimes I have her do the opposite. I'm like, okay, I want you to play that. Don't move at all. She's like, oh, oh. well, you know, and it's really hard for her not to. I'm like, okay, now do a different movement. So her favorite way to break out of any pattern she's trying to break out of is to walk and play. Just walk. It can be side, it can move forward. It can be circles. It can be just wandering. I'm like, you know, this piece You've played it 7 million times. You've got it memorized, don't you? She goes, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, I'm pretty positive. At least to a point, you have this memorized. She goes, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and so then she starts walking. We just play it. Just wander around the room and just play it. And she sounds so much better. And all mm -hmm. she's doing is walking because she's free to explore the space around her and not feel like she's stuck in this. I have to be like, like you don't need the music stand. You know, this person mm. does, this particular student doesn't. And the walking, I feel she's like, that's my favorite. I'm like, maybe you should learn how to like walk on stage and take your, you, she, she tends to memorize everything anyway. Like maybe you should just take the right. stand off and walk around and look at your audience. I'm going to talk to her about that this week. Yeah. I just came up with that. <laughs> See what yeah, she does. Yeah. Absolutely. Because the, the visual aspect, as Jen was that, you know, that locks us into looking at this stand, then we revolve around this stand and we mm -hmm. might, yeah, we become yeah. very, yeah, front yeah. facing, like, yeah, you get trapped in that headspace. So, oh, well, to step Who back. Who says we get, can't walk around? What? Where is it ever said when we, we were taught to music <laughs> that you have to stand here? <laughs> or sit here like why can't we move where did that come from exactly. did, i don't know a couple of my favorite <laughs> uh modern clarinet performers of course they got they've done this a billion times they're like i don't need the music it's fine does what am i playing today i don't know we'll find out you know <laughs> now, this but is... they want they no stand and they will wander i mean not super crazy far they're always generally in front of the piano but you know they're like okay play mm -hmm. with the pianist a little bit come over here look at this person what they're so much fun to listen to. It's interactive. Yeah. And they're, mm -hmm. I mean, they're not stressed out. They're like, eh, I feel like being over here right now. <laughs> you know, maybe it, I don't know if that where it came from, but I start to think like I, the church I grew up in, it was a big, like you, the, the preacher stood behind a pulpit. That was it. And the song leader stood behind the pulpit and that was it. And it was kind of like a whoo thing when they had like mics and they could walk around and like, who aren't you like contemporary or whatever? And then it got to be like, not a thing, but it was kind of that the, in the beginning, it was just different. You know, you're not, you were expected to be here. And then someone went, no, I don't, I have a, I'm going to move. I'm going to walk over here talk over, engage with the audience. It's exactly the same thing. You're still engaging with an audience. It's just that audience isn't used to, isn't used to that classically. We see that with, with performers of all other kinds of genres. Bands don't just stand on stage and sit in one plot, one spot. They're all over the place. Why aren't we? That's we so true. Angela, I, 
Yes, I think this does come down to perhaps in, um, especially, I can't speak for any music tradition outside of Western classical um, music, but uh, definitely I, I sort of feel this master apprentice, uh, even what I was saying before, this this old ideology, although I think it still continues, of, uh, you know, that the composer's intention needs to be just passed through this vessel of a musician where you just have to, you know, it's this cognitive understanding mm-hmm. of the piece. And, and yes, we need a person on stage to do that. But you as a musician, you have to be, it's not about you, it's the it's it's about passing on that uh that that composer's intention so and i think maybe that's that's part of how it's gotten western classical um music is a lot of it is based around hierarchy let's you know look at theoretically and uh, and you know melody and harmony and even we have more important chords than others it's it's all hierarchy basic metric hierarchy like that's the one two three four <laughs> like that's just how how it works so maybe it's seeped out into our understanding of <laughs> of of performers and it, it could be well that's you know definitely been been a thing and, and this idea of yeah how how did we get so disconnected to our bodies um and and what and yeah why can't we walk around (laughs) i'm all for walking around and playing by the way we'll officially state that here you are allowed to walk and play your instrument (laughs) there's a group you guys heard of this group called the fourth wall yes they're a flute Marim- they were at they were at Utah, I think. Maybe yes, they were. Flute, yeah. marimba, and trombone. Trombone, yes. Yeah, they dance and they don't just dance while they play. It's like, playing like acrobatic, acrobatic stuff happening there. That's yeah. While playing like Messian or Peter and the Wolf, mm-hmm. or it's yeah. the craziest thing. And I don't know how I feel about it. I'm like, if that's your shtick, roll with it. I like it. It's a new thing. You know, it's gonna hit some people just right. But at the other point, it's like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Classical sensibilities, you're just supposed to stand there and stare at your stand. No. Yeah, absolutely, Angela. I I understand that sentiment exactly. When I first started looking at, looking for music that has composer-instructed movement and choreography in stage directions, ah, absolutely. You know, they're like, well, these are certain pieces where that is intended composers intended but you know it was it was written into it uh conceptually you know it, it's there rather than someone taking a flute piece and slapping a ballet on top of me you know, or trying to do a pirouette and i can understand i can feel a little bit like that as well when i said mm. but you know like you as well angela it, it, it has artistic merit but it, it does cause some feelings inside of me and that um that's been worthy of of um of really looking into myself and critiquing that or just investigate and be like oh yeah why do i feel like that where is that thought come from is that serving me or um yeah sort of how can, how can i challenge that um mm-hmm. how you know how might i get around that it, it's been it's been really interesting it's definitely I haven't just made one decision it's it's still ongoing um 
And, and it is really interesting to consider that and, and reflect on it. So I totally resonate with, with what you're saying and those things that you say, oh, yeah, hang on, how do I feel? What, yeah, oh, I have a strong reaction there. What is, you know, what is that? What does that mean? And, yeah, and, and does that, does that matter? Can we be moving into, in, into that? Yeah, how much of, um, of the, yeah, of this movement can we, is there anything wrong if someone says, no, I do want to? choreograph the pillow flute sonata you know they well can they, <laughs> they do. Why not? Yeah. yeah exactly it's um yeah it's, it's definitely interesting to think i've had to grapple with a lot myself even preparing this repertoire that has composer instructed movement there mm. have been times where i think oh, okay i can do this for my phd but i don't think that i could really fully do you know a whole concert series in public I don't think people are going to like that not ready especially yeah they're not ready for it and you know and so so I've I've grappled with that I even mentioned in my PhD when I was recording that one person who said oh your PhD isn't going to find much because people don't move when <laughs> when they play they were genuinely concerned for me um, <laughs> uh, which is you know I I appreciate that um uh and, and uh, yeah and 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 they they also spoke of uh Marcel Moyes uh and also the the French tradition as well they really believed that people like Marcel Moyes uh w- would not have wanted people to move at all uh flute players to move at all when they when they play and yeah so they had some some interesting I didn't really see sort of evidence of that. I've seen some master classes and teaching of Marcel Moyes, but wasn't he anyway. in like the Victorian era? Um, I... Yeah, or the early nineteen hundreds. Uh, well, maybe the, not. The, well, you know that French flute school. The, yeah, um, that was a very what's the word? Oh, oh yes. Off. Proper. That's right. The ideology. Yeah. You know, the entire uh, culture in that point. Mm. You know, you dress a certain way, you behave a certain way, you do not dress and behave a certain way. <laughs> you forget that Mozart <gasps> drank and did cocaine, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not right. sure about. Yeah, the Victorian era, but definitely in the, those early 1900s at the Paris Conservatoire and thinking about going into the world wars and, and actually I think, you know, Europe, what that did to them and culturally as well, that, you know, that there was a lot of people closing off from the horrors of war mm-hmm. and, and just recovering from that. Yeah, yeah, I can I can understand that maybe there was a certain mentality of after so much horrendous, Mm. uh you, you know war activity and yeah. crimes and happening people were seeking that stability again so look i'm not i wouldn't be surprised if it came back to okay very structured um teaching and performance practice you know something solid to hold on to after so you know so much had been turned upside down in those years of the war and you know it didn't just go straight back to you know happily <laughs> happy families afterwards you know there, there were decades of, and generations of um of struggle afterwards so in terms of i don't know about this marcel Moyes. uh i don't know what his uh, full opinions were on on movement and and playing but um 
it's certainly from what I gather, not that I'm an expert or anything, I've, I've read a few of his letters and seen some of his, uh, you know, original masterclasses, but um, the way even he sort of gestured in, in his masterclasses and talking of the phrase, okay, maybe he himself, especially in his older years, wasn't jumping around and, and walking around, um, you know, physical limitations and uh, abilities come into play there too. But I think he would have definitely encouraged it in terms of a metaphor of, you know, movement of the phrase. You see that in, in teachers as well, um, when they just, you can convey more in teaching with the when you move, yeah. and that quality of your hand movement rather than saying, okay, so start off with a very soft <laughs> dynamic and then you'll need to gradually increase at, uh, you know, but, Ah, words so um uh, so hard to to convey um well it's it's hard to convey music through through words and and this sort of makes me think of music as an art form compared to even sort of poetry i love poetry absolutely but i think music can convey more pieces of simultaneous information melody harmony timbre articulation instrumentation um vocal tone except and you can have written word um and that itself has its own structure and you know but i think with that that visual i want to say limitation but um definitely you know some linguistic limitations perhaps i think you know music can convey perhaps this is maybe a working hypothesis here uh, can convey so much more and and movement being like that as well it's why it's so hard what to capture movement but it's the same with music notation music notation is uh, captures very little of of that actual sound that comes out um and it's yeah if, if you had to notate well we you know people transcribe jazz solos all the time but that's just notes and, and rhythms it's and we know that yeah that's right if, it's not if, you, if you haven't it's... heard the original solo i don't care how good the transcription is it's not going to be the same okay. <laughs> <laughs> no that, yeah absolutely yeah that that's right and it's we, we encounter those same things in in movement and, and and dance as well so look it, it can make movement analysis quite tricky and i don't like writing a thesis with words about movement is is hard people joke all the time and i think there's this sort of you know the three minute thesis competition for um like phd and master's writers well there's this sort of joke equivalent of it of like the interpret interpretive dance your phd and people you know it's a it's a, it's a real thing but it kind of, it's you know science majors get in there but i think that is actually a part of my thesis I really need to do. <laughs> and, and, I, and I really need to have this. It's, uh, you know, it has to be visual and audio and it, and it is absolutely. Um, there's a lot of, you know, notation and, but the video, the people doing the thing, we need to, to capture that. And I just feel um, people joke to me all the time. Oh, do an interpretive dance. Oh, yes. I will. That would actually really help me. And music teachers do that all the time. Um, they're experts at, you know, 
conveying but it comes so naturally and and this is i think important as well you don't need to be a hardcore movement analyst everyone's body has its own knowledge I think people can really tap into what they need. Maybe they need someone to help them with that language and to understand certain patterns and connections. Uh, but if you have a body, no matter what it can or can't do, it still can do things and it has its own knowledge. Our bodies tell our autobiography in a way. They carry injuries or things that cool things that they can do. They carry emotions and, and our history and our memories. Um, and and that itself is is really important so people already have a rich inner movement world and people like Angela Jen and myself you know we're here to to help you on a different like heaps of different ways of going about it but we can help people on on that path to their own self-knowledge which feeds back into themselves so yeah people are their own people everyone is a movement expert we all learn how to navigate ourselves through the world and, and people people have good instincts you know if you don't sort of think oh i don't really get along with that person oh, there's something you know i feel a bit we all do deal with like group synchrony all those people that you really vibe with you know your tribe or <laughs> your, your mm -hmm. best you know what oh, it's um you know and you just feel like you can breathe together you your rhythm in your sentences finish you know you can finish each other's that you just you have that lovely flow that is musical that is that sort of movement art in a way so it's just a really sort of human experience i think and it's this is why it's so lovely we can have that expressivity in it and it doesn't just have to be functional yes we do want to talk about you know the the injury that that's so important and and the functional recuperative body conditioning strength training but it also has this really um beautiful expressive um part to it as well which musicians can can put back into their creativity as well so when they're doing their body conditioning they might think oh yeah this is um i feel like i'm really at the gym right now but but hold on to that <laughs> because i think that that is just that is strengthening and and training those muscles to perform in that expressive way as well so I just wanted to mention that because I'm really, really passionate about this, you know, it's not just functional or expressive, but they feed into each other. To be expressive, we need to have a, a healthy, efficient, you know, strong, mobile, stable way of, of moving. So looking after yourself in that way is going to feed back into your creative output and just your general happiness <laughs> as mm -hmm. a as a person as as well to feel enlivened through through music and, and breath and uh, all that sort of thing so it's uh it's really important and i absolutely respect the work that you both do in those areas thank you simone i think i think you're really right with all of that i think we could go on and on, on i mean about how they're all connected and I, as we're talking, I'm thinking, wow, this sounds like Alexander. Wow, this sounds like Feldenkrais. Wow, this yeah. sounds like the movement assessments I do. Wow, this sounds like things I talk about in the gym. Wow, this sounds like things that Jen has talked about a million <laughs> right. times. Like this all, I mean, it's so interconnected, which is, you know, why I really wanted to have you on here. Um, and I'm kind of really curious um, about what this notation looks like. But for anybody who wants to, um, who's curious about some resources, 
Are there any resources that you would recommend for people who are interested in learning more about this? What would you What would you tell them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a lot of um, official sort of books and sources. If, if anyone looks up even the Laban Bartenyev Institute of Movement Studies, I can send and provide links to, you know, what we chat in the podcast. I'll make sure that, yeah, we can get all of that. Um, either the Trinity Laban Conservatoire of Music and Dance in the UK, they've also um, um, got shops. There's, there's a lot of sort of, yeah, there are lots of uh, resources available, uh, books and things like that that people can can buy or get onto a mailing list if you go onto the um, Laban Bartenyev Institute movement. So they've got a really great mailing list of just you know seeing workshops and conferences and and things like that. And uh, and I myself am in the process of of coming up with um, just general resources. I have informal ones that I send to people, um, and I'm in the process of creating some that look a bit more interesting, but ones that could be they're just basic introductory things but that would that like you said Angela that would show this because the notation system is um is super cool uh, the the body symbols really look like little body symbols um it's uh, it's pretty adorable in my opinion <laughs> um and and the space symbols are, are kind of cool and if you you'll see the musicians will see the connection to um to music notation so uh yeah i i've definitely noticed from from my teaching and my research my research that uh some basic introductory level resources just really available um are needed to help explore the system more so yeah i'll very happy to to put links to things and uh to be providing some other resources as well it's a, a really sort of growing growing field which is exciting. So yes, absolutely, I can um, can help put out. I think these institutions are a great place to start because they do talk about uh, you know brief history uh, of who these people were and a bit about the system. Um, and then if you really want to get into it, yeah, there are some interesting books that really really dive into it. Um, and they're beautiful books as well. If I can say, there's um, uh, a lot of them. You know, especially with the the dance notation or the Laban notation and some beautiful caricatures of, you know, people moving and the space harmony and geometry around them. Uh, I love them. So, um, yeah, there are some really gorgeous, gorgeous books, but I'm also working on getting resources that are introductory, but also freely available so that people can access this because personally, I'd love people to really uh, take it on board and, and to make it accessible in that way. Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes. So that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Jen, did you have any other questions or thoughts? Forgot I had muted myself because the cats were running around. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I mean, I think, I think it's been a a great, a great topic, a great discussion, a great different, different angle on the same thing. You know, we, we keep bringing up here in a lot of ways. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I got. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, Simone, where, thank you again for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure. We're really glad you made the time to, you know, figure out the time zone thing because you're all the way yeah. in Australia. And yeah. We're in three <laughs> different time zones here. But um, if anybody wow. has any questions or wants to reach you, where where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. I'll put a link. Um, but otherwise, my my website, simonemoramusic.com is the best way to reach out to me. Um, I, I do have some social media as well. Um, Instagram is probably the, the place 
for me that um that i'm active but yeah uh, social media or on my my website um if you want to email through anything uh, and absolutely I'm, I'm very open to that i've had wonderful people around the world uh, contact me that nfa convention was a really great place to get started and probably one of um my most interesting connections has been uh, someone from india who works with um puppets and uh and sort of machines and looking at lma and this um uh and, and puppetry or uh yeah and um motion yeah well it's it's really fascinating i can't summarize it particularly well right now or very concisely um but uh yeah but looking at puppetry and sort of machines and 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 how this laban movement analysis can be incorporated into that as part of that sort of artistic endeavor and also reflecting on it as well um and i didn't know but that a history of um indian dance has a a huge parallels to a lot of this not surprising it's also a somatic practice and there are some very old but um uh, just amazing texts where they've thought about all of these things again in another sort of um linguistic and cultural way so it, it's just fascinating that's one thing that i haven't really explored myself is looking at this outside of a very sort of eurocentric uh culture um, but that's just because of sort of my limitations of english speaking and my location but i i do acknowledge and really look forward to as i go through my own career of understanding and exploring uh cross-cultural connections and, and really just looking at, at, at other cultures. India already has good connections to the Laban community. So, um, yeah, I find what they do very fascinating. I need to study forever so that I can <laughs> have time to just explore and, and, and learn myself. Fascinating. Well, thank you again for joining us. We really thank enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thank you. And you guys, thank you. I mean, thank not you guys, everybody here. Is, I forget. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening. If you are listening at home, we appreciate your time. <laughs> yes. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us. It will help us to get in front of more musicians. And that is the entire reason we're doing this. So thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time. Hey, musicians. Did you know that up to 90% of musicians will experience playing related pain or injury over the course of their career? How many hushed conversations have you heard about a lingering, quote, shoulder pain or a weird tingling in your fingers or maybe low back pain or a crampy weakness or maybe you or your colleague just says, I just have to get through the gig and you watch them pop Advil like candy, maybe flush it down with whiskey. How many times have we seen something like this? So many, right? Well, it's time we start talking about our struggles, our pain, our frustrations in a private space where we don't just complain and mobilize and blindly stretch, but we learn how to strengthen our muscles, our career successes, and build each other up. I've got a brand new program that combines all of these things, and I want you to be a part of it. It's a community, not a workout. It's a community with group coaching and great content that in 12 weeks, we'll have you understanding more about your body, what you need, and how you work so you can avoid that career-threatening injury. The three things that musicians don't want. We don't want to be injured. We don't want to have a lack of stamina. And we don't want to be clueless, aka when you hurt, who do you go see? Just a quote doctor? Well, this program addresses all of those things. You're going to walk away with an immense knowledge of 
who to see. You're going to be empowered because you're going to know what to do should you ever get injured or should you have a colleague that gets injured. You will be able to actually offer appropriate advice. You're also going to learn about the body and the anatomy as it relates to playing your instrument and your own anatomy. And then you're going to learn how to build not just your strength and endurance, but you're going to learn how to design your own corrective exercise program. So I hope you will join me in this new program. It's called the Music Strong Pilot Program, Job Security for Musicians.